Thank you for listening to this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this conversation, South Australia's most celebrated portrait artist, Robert Hannaford, and broadcaster Philip Adams discuss Hannaford's life and work. Robert, when I was cutting your ribbon last night, I uh, started off making some observations on the history of self-portraiture, making the point that a great portrait painter like Rembrandt found himself the most accessible of subjects. He was always around, all you need is a mirror, off you go. And the trajectory, the overarching narrative of Rembrandt's self-portraits start with cockiness, arrogance, and as the years pass and life gets tougher and grimmer, the paintings become more and more sombre until at the end he's not looking into the mirror, he's looking into the face of his own death. Life and death is very much the theme of what we've got, of what you've done. You and I have often talked about death, but to you death has always been a very significant subject. Indeed it has. Um, first of all, I'd like to uh, apologise for my voice because I've had a throat operation some years ago, so I'm not drunk. <laughs> well, you are, Robert. But <laughs> yes, I, death is the ultimate mystery and uh, it's always been lurking there in the world around me and uh, I've been drawn to it like a magnet. I love looking at death front on, so to speak, and I uh, imagine I see it in everybody when I paint them or when I look at myself in the mirror or um, anything, really. You and I have both faced it recently and uh, years ago I wrote that uh, for me mortality is a great aphrodisiac for living and you were telling me that when when it did seem close if anything it intensified your your pleasure in life your sense of wonderment of existing. <coughs> yes I, I can relate to what you've said about death when, uh, when I faced uh, face it. I mean we all face it every day but we just don't realise it but um, you can't help when you're in hospital and feeling terrible and uh, and uh, I remember thinking seriously about the possibility of um, suicide uh, you know taking the tablet and I spoke it was serious enough for me to speak to my doctor about it but that was to alleviate the pain. Uh, the, um, it wasn't that I was sick of life, but I thought I'd rather be dead than alive for a while. It's possible that you could. I don't think I thought of it seriously. But um, I never, I was always, uh, in love with life and right through that period it did seem intensified 
and that love of life, how lucky we are to be alive and how wonderful it is to be alive. And even if you've only got a month to live, that last month, I'm sure, would have been as wonderful as any day. The drawings are of life and death. There's a beautiful drawing of one of your children moments after birth. And there's the drawings you did of your father moments after his death. Yes, well, I'm attracted to such things, as I said. And um, um, I drew all my four children uh, moments after birth and every day for a while, uh, for the first four or five days, I've got literally scores of drawings. I guess it's, you don't know what you're searching for. It, I'm attracted to it, but I'm looking for that elusive thing that makes us unique. And to, find, to see it in a newborn baby is fascinating. I can honestly tell in a, some of the drawings I did, I can see the, see the now adults, I can see the character in a one-day-old baby. And in my father, after he died, Again, it's, it's not conscious, you're just attracted to it. I had to draw him. I <clears throat> but I think I was looking for uh, the essence, where, where had it gone? And uh, I wanted to explore that face that I knew so well. I think searching for the essential in my father's case, his name was Claude. And um, there was no morbidity or anything about it. I was thrilled to be there with my youngest daughter, who was three at the time. And uh, she was at that age where death doesn't mean anything like, as it didn't to me. So it was a wonderful time to spend a couple of hours after he died drawing him. I felt I was right in my element. <laughs> I promise I won't continue to dwell on death, but uh, it's interesting that it's so hidden in the last century, which we, everyone here narrowly escaped, 150 million people died at least in wars and genocides, and we're on track to probably reach that number in the 21st century. And yet I discover again and again that there are adult Australians, including, I suspect, quite a few in the audience here, who have never seen a dead body because yeah. we're still so good at hiding it behind hospital screens. And That's right. Keeping it at arm's length. Yeah. Well, my good friend Anselm, who's sitting in the front row, when his father died, first thing he did was to ring me up. Come on, come and draw mm. Dad, who we, I'd drawn and we both had drawn and painted him in life and the opportunity as he was lying there not long after death was something that it was brought us together it was something we loved doing and we spent a couple of hours drawing the man we loved and knew um, that closeness with death is something that appeals to me 
decades ago. And I know it does to you, yeah, too. <laughs> well, I've been fascinated with it since I discovered its reality at the age of four. And it propelled me to become an atheist at five, even though I wouldn't hear the term for another 10 years. But uh, I've always appreciated the, the value of, of a finite lifetime because it is a great exhilarant. Oh, great aphrodisiac. Yeah. Many years ago, the ABC <coughs> offered me half an hour just to play with this, 30 years ago. And I said, okay, it'll be fine. I can talk on anything I like. And they said, yeah. I said, okay, I want to talk about death. And I want one prop. I said, what's that? I said, a corpse. <laughs> I want a real dead body in the studio. And I just want to wander around and do a last four Yorick's with it and, uh, and make the point. This is a real dead body. It's not an actor holding his breath. This is the real thing. And I have to tell you, if we had one of, if we had such a, an opportunity in the Rundle Mall or anywhere, well, look at Lennon. He's, he's a huge tourist attraction. Yes. Not simply because it's Lennon, but because it gives people a chance to stare mm. at someone who isn't around anymore. The ABC decided it was vulgar and that I couldn't have a real dead body. And I said, but the television is a charnel house of death. <laughs> Three quarters of the mass entertainment is about various forms of killing people. It's an exquisite hypocrisy, really. Now, I uh, was fascinated to meet your mother last night. Here's a woman of 98. She's seen a lot of life. <laughs> well, let me put it another way. She's sitting beside you. Was she terribly proud of you last night, do you think? Um, she takes my fame rather casually, <coughs> which, when I think about it, is what I like about her. She, um, yeah, she's a wonderful woman, my mother, <laughs> and uh, very much uh, alive and kicking at 98, very on the ball. She won't get a telegram anymore, but she might get an email from the palace in a couple of years. <laughs> well, if she had it her way, she wouldn't. She always claims she's, you know, happy to die. I mean, death is one of those things that, you know, I was brought up on a farm and uh, we take it very much for granted. Sure. And uh, we'd kill a sheep once a week and as a kid and even as an adult, I would cut open the body and cut open the eye and find the little iris and the, the little lens in the middle of the eye. And so death is something you do live with on a farm. Uh, and uh, it's never terrified me. I mean, pain might, but not death. There's an irony in us sitting here at the uh, Art Gallery of South Australia, being introduced by the charming Nick, because uh, until Nick came along, the, South, the Art Gallery of South Australia had not, in fact, been very kind towards you. They, had, they didn't have a very large collection of habits. In fact, they had none. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, I find it odd that um, it never occurred to me that they should have any of mine. 
I've always felt separate from the mainstream of art. Uh, in fact, what I do and have been interested in is not so much art. It's exploring the world through drawing and painting. And uh, the, the art world and I have never crossed paths very often. And uh, we are now thanks to Nick, I suppose. <laughs> it's a tough world, it's a brutal world. I remember when I was first got involved in the Archibald process, discovering how appallingly artists treat each other. You think politics is rough, <laughs> but the art world is, uh, is incredibly brutal. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a world that I don't uh, take much interest in, to be quite honest. I love art. and and many artists. But there's no criteria to judge art other than, which is well, it's quite interesting, you know. The, um, it's not like athletics where there's clear... Yeah, there's a, exactly. Yeah. I mean, art is a word that has been invented and they didn't have a word for it once, I imagine. They didn't have a word for art in Egypt, for example. Didn't they? No. Well, they never saw go. it as art, they saw it as a, well, it was a craft, it was a profession, but it wasn't, it didn't have the same meaning that yeah. we apply to it. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, for me, the exploration of the world through art or drawing, painting, um, is a way of bypassing those cultural ways of looking at the world, the words, so to speak. It's a, it's a, a slightly different level than, um, than information and um, ideas. I was, I was very familiar with a lot of the paintings, that wonderful portrait of Loritja. And she turned up last night. Yeah, right she was looking great, wasn't she? Flannery, Keating, etc. But I hadn't seen the drawing. I hadn't realised that you'd done so many thousands. I've seen you around the place from time to time, constantly doodling away. You've recorded almost, it would seem, every moment of your life and the life of others. Uh, well, it does seem that way when you see all the work that's presented, but most days I sail through with, without doing much. And I, I think it's, <laughs> it's always been that way. Occasionally you get into it and um, things are produced. I quoted John Berger, the great uh, art Marxist art critic, something he wrote that I read of his half a century ago, when he said that drawing, drawings are the questions, paintings are the answers, and he rates the drawing above the painting because he sees in it this constant process of exploration, of querying, of curiosity. And your drawings show that very powerfully. Well, thank you. I, I agree. There's something more spontaneous about a drawing. They, 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 do, they do fascinate me, the drawings of, well, even, you know, the great artists. I love to see their drawings. They often show more, um, they're more direct. 
Think, and but your, your style, even in drawings, emphatically and dramatically changes. There are some drawings in there which Monteleone might have done this, and there are others which are quite brutally expressed. You know, sometimes yeah. you're slashing away with a, a thick nib, other times it's fine and delicate. Yes. Yes, well, that depends on what's at hand and the subject and how you feel that day. And um, I don't know what to say on that, but yes, you... Um, um, you express yourself with what is at hand and, and what situation you're in. So occasionally I've had to look around for something to draw with because I wanted to draw and I've forgotten my sketchbook or something and you'll draw on the tablecloth or the back of your hand or whatever. Um, and they're just as relevant as those that are done in the sketchbook and with the right materials. <coughs> the, um, I mentioned the Rembrandt case, another case of an overarching narrative in self-portraits in all sorts of forms is Picasso. And once again, the early Picassos, he sees himself as an absolutely sexually charged and vital young fellow, and then towards the end they get more and more bleak. But his work emphatically changes with relationships. Along comes a new muse, a new wife, mm. and suddenly there's <coughs> a new Picasso. Is that detectable in your work? Um, <clears throat> I don't think it is particularly. If I look at my work over, well, in an exhibition, sometimes it's hard to tell when they were done, what decade, what uh, apart from a certain um, precision and everything that one might have when one's eyes are work more clearly. Um, I don't know how to answer that. I guess it's for others to see <coughs> if there's a change. Well, has it been a revelation to you, seeing all, the, all your work massed in this way? Well, I haven't had a good look at it yet. I've <laughs> well, I've been whiz, just whiz out <laughs> and pop back. And yeah. no, it's hard to see your work. It is interesting to see your work in a strange context, like a gallery, um, because you're used to seeing each work separately and then they disappear and you don't see them in relation to other paintings. And Nick has related them to the collection as well. So I think that demands a, a, a closer quieter, slower look, which I haven't done yet. Well, you're not just an Australian artist, you are very specifically a South Australian artist. And although this gallery, until recently, uh, treated you with some sort of disdain, you, you always kept coming back here. You'd come back and you'd prowl the, the halls and the walls, and you'd respond to works, often by local artists. Yeah. And they're shown there, these cross-references yeah. are part of the exhibition. Yes, I don't know what it is about um, home. Uh, I was born here and uh, my forebears came from here uh, for five generations, or well, since white settlement here. 
But um, I do love this place in uh, um, South Australia. And I do relate to it. I feel it's home as close as you can get. But I'm sure I'd be just as happy living anywhere else in the world as I have a few occasions. I don't know why I stay around, but I do love South Australia. And it's not just the white culture, it's the past. I'm very conscious of the Aboriginal culture that lived here for many, many thousands of years. And the, the country before even they arrived. <laughs> You're either here was one of your influences uh, Heiston. Yeah, uh, I feel very lucky to be born in South Australia to have met both Heiston and Heal. Um, they're both wonderful artists, in my opinion. Uh, both great draftsmen. Both wonderful people. I mean, how lucky I have been to got to know them both. I couldn't think of uh, anybody in, in the history of art I'd rather have uh, met and got to know than those two men. But the history of art involves these sort of, uh, these forms of apprenticeship in every culture, doesn't it? Art is something that's handed on from generations and yeah. generations, from master to apprentice. Yeah. That just reminded me of a dream I had last night. <laughs> that's really odd. I don't, I don't often dream about Heisen, Hans Heisen. I don't think I've ever dreamed about him, but I did dream about him last night. I dreamt that we were um, looking at paintings and talking about... Um, <laughs> well, it's a dream, but Degas was it. I don't know why I dreamt about Degas last night. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Dreams I'm, are hard to, but your, your comment just reminded me. I've uh, never taken dreams that seriously. I want to describe them as the bowel motions of the brain, but uh, <laughs> in this case, they clearly have compelling <laughs> significance. And I think the rest of the interview should be conducted with you lying on a, Freudian, <laughs> on a right. Sigmund Freudian couch. <laughs> Nick, do you have one in the collection? But there are I'd a couple of very strange the couches. one man who's more hard-headed about yeah. mysticism than I am even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, but the, that's one of the, the curatorial tricks here is that you do see those associations. You do see the, the way one artist generates and lives on in another. Yes. Yeah, I guess that's what we call culture. Um, it's true, but um, having said that, for many, many years, I've always tried to go beyond my immediate culture. And that's where <coughs> drawing and painting are so interesting because it's a way of um, uh, relating to the world in a non-cultural way, without ideas, without thoughts. I mean, they're there, and I'm not saying uh, they're not always there and they don't influence everything you do, but 
What fascinates me about the whole process is through drawing and painting, uh, you move beyond the cultural influences for a while. You know, you're just using your eyes and your hands, and there's a sort of a bypassing the um, thinking brain. One of the um, ingredients in the splendid uh, in the splendid catalogue of the exhibition is a, a memories of Robert Desai describing what it's like to be painted by you. And oddly enough, by coincidence, I've got a brief description of what it's like in today's Australia. And ladies and gentlemen, it is terrifying. Um, Robert arrived at the farm and he built this little, tiny little rickety platform. And he might be a terrific painter, but he's a shithouse carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he plonks you up on this platform thing and you can feel it weaving and buckling and you think at any minute now I'm going to be in terrible trouble. I didn't want you to be too secure. Well, <laughs> it, 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 well it didn't entirely work because I remember I kept nodding off. <laughs> Many artists, I have to tell you, do portraits from photographs or, you know, uh, but Rob, but this bloke insists on sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting. And sometimes I'd just drift off and I'd wake up and Robert would still be there. Now, what he does is quite terrifying. You know that experience you get when you go to a 3D movie and images are jumping out of the screen at you? That's what it's like to be painted by Robert. He, he spreads a few drop sheets out, he kicks his shoes off and he stands back quite a distance and he scrutinises you ruthlessly and then he starts to sort of tremble and then suddenly he leaps at you and oh the, I forgot to mention the canvas is beside you, you can't see it but it's you know, to your left in my case, he probably puts it to the right with other sitters but um, <laughs> and as I was explaining last night it's rather like being in a, a tethered bull with a with an incredibly energetic toreador attacking you constantly, or being in a pardon when you're not able to move. <laughs> and this goes on and on and on. And if he had a pedometer stuck to his, stuck to his manly thigh, I reckon he's probably runs miles and miles and well, miles. Some of my sitters have uh, done just that. They've worked it out while they've been sitting there. <laughs> and I think it's um, five to eight kilometres a day. Well, see, Michelangelo never did more than three. <laughs> I know this. I whacked a pedometer on him. <laughs> That's a lot of distance, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's, I like to get physically involved. Yeah. Uh, I guess it helps you keep your thoughts from dominating. Uh, you know, it keeps them in abeyance if you're physically involved and even getting a bit of a sweat up. It's a physical uh, process. I, I do like. you think that with all this mileage, with all this physicality, do you get to know the sitter during that process? <laughs> Sometimes you wouldn't want to know them. You do. You try to get to know them on the canvas. I mean, I've had all sorts of relationships with sitters. I've, I've never quite worked it out, but I've probably painted um, 
between three and five hundred uh, commissioned portraits of strangers I've never met before. They're the worst sorts of strangers. <laughs> <laughs> the ones you've never met. And some you become very, you become lifelong friends. Others, they go out the door and you never see or think of them again. But in the act of painting, uh, it's not necessary for me to know their history or facts about them. And sometimes they get a bit upset. They feel that I should know what they've been doing and who they, where they come from and all that. No, it's purely a visual thing. It's what comes through the through observation that fascinates me. I mean, I do try to keep them happy by chatting and asking a few questions, but it's only so that we can keep on a friendly relationship. <laughs> this sounds like a silly question. Have you ever done a profile painting, like Whistler's Mother or like... Uh, like many of the medieval painters, used to paint people sideways. Yes, yes, I've done a couple, even in commissions. Uh, I don't know what it is that uh, determines the final uh, pose, if you want to call it that, of your sitter. You look for, I look for, uh, the, the pose that says the most about the sitter as far as I'm concerned. Maybe not the most, but the part that I like. And occasionally I have put people side on and painted them in profile because that was the angle which I thought said most about the sitter. And after all, that's what I feel my job is when I paint somebody to, to um, um, say, this is this person, and this may be the only record of this person forever. If this is the only record, it's my job to depict the essence of that person. And uh, whether it... <coughs> okay, the that, angle expi of that it explains pose, and incidentally, you use that framing device, don't you, when you're... Yes. In you're constantly holding it up like a movie director might hold up his, uh, yes. his viewing lens. Yes, I've, um, in the past I used to cut a little thing out, but now you can buy them in the shop with it open oh. and, and you mm. can get any angle, any um, uh, shape, rectangle or square. A couple of the most powerful paintings are in fact rectangles. Yes. That's not a common yeah. shape. But I was fascinated to read the other day that Van Gogh, had a, um, the same device. He moved it like that and he used it right through his painting life until the very last year he threw it away. But, you know, that was after he left. Oh, that fascinated me because I thought they were only invented this century, those little devices, mm. but he made his own. Okay, we've talked about the pose. Let's talk about the facial expression. It was an absolute delight for me to see Bewitcher last night, yeah. because I think that your portrait of Bewitcher is probably, <laughs> I think it's the best portrait that I've ever seen you do. And she rolled in last night and she said, he wouldn't let me smile. And I said, that's interesting, <laughs> he made me sit on a piece of cactus. You know. <laughs> but it raises the issue that if uh, Nick and his team were to curate an exhibition 
of smiling portraits. God, they'd find them few and far between, wouldn't they? Yeah. Now, we know of you know, Franz Hull's <coughs> notorious case. Yeah. But so few portraits in the history of art have shown smiling people. Yeah, well, a smile tends to be a mask that you suddenly smile to cover up who you really are, you know. A smile is a way of uh, presenting, of camouflaging yourself, uh, you know, I think. It, not that that's not a great smiling painting by Hulls. And I have painted people that smile. In fact, I painted somebody, and was it this year or just last year, in Sydney. And uh, he smiled. And it's unusual for a sitter to smile because they, it's a long process. It takes six or eight sittings. But he, he put this grin on, and I, you know, it's not my position to say, hang on a minute, you, you won't be able to hold that. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> and uh, I painted him smiling. <laughs> But it looked like a grimace, as it was. He, he kept it up all the way through. More of a he was, uh, Yeah, it was a very strange uh, encounter, that one. I've, I've painted, as I said, four or five hundred people, but this one was very strange. He insisted on smiling all the way through, and it ended up looking a bit like a grimace. And uh, it was fascinating from my point of view, because... You know, you try to paint the, you've got it. You know, that's what it's all about, the person. And there he was, grimacing. And uh, I don't think he liked the portrait. <laughs> Serves him right. <laughs> I want to go back to the you and the Archibalds. There was a time, and people don't realise this, when an artist could have more than one. Mm. In the Archibald, on the one side, you had three, I think, and... In one yeah, I think there was. Yeah, one, uh, when I first started going in the arts world about 20 odd years ago, uh, they picked 15 or 20 paintings and sometimes one artist got two or three chosen and there for a couple of years I had two or three in every year. I'm reminding you of the story because I know... Then they changed it, you could only have one. If you're lucky. But I uh, I'm raised this story because you were telling me last night off stage about uh, a, a painter, it's a very quite a good painter in Sydney, who regarded you as a, a South Australian outsider, sort of a country bumpkin. She got progressively angrier that you were doing so well. Uh, that's the way you read it. I <laughs> <laughs> no, it was my first... Archibald, I think, and I happened to be in Sydney and I went to it. And look, I can't remember this person's name, which is probably well that I can't. But she was, um, she turned her back on me when I was introduced to her because she thought it was presumptuous, this young South Australian bursting into the Sydney scene. There's another possibility, painting someone from the back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've done that too. <laughs> you know, I suddenly remember... Sometimes the back can say a heck of a lot. Yeah. The body language 
it's much important and more important as I get older. I suddenly remember a story, and I think it's true, about Napoleon and that famous pose with the hand in the coat. Hands are hard, hands are difficult. And when young uh, French officers were being painted, if they put their hand in, in their jacket, it cost less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You also paint hands, don't you? Yes, I love painting hands. Uh, do they tell you a lot about the, the sitter? Well, they do. Every part of the body does, but I guess the hands uh, almost like part of the brain, aren't they? They, they um, well, they're more directly linked to what you're thinking and everything. You know, if you're thinking certain things, your hands fidget. And I'm trying to paint a portrait of Robert Hannaford here, and uh, <laughs> he's a very good sitter. <laughs> Robert, what about the other arts? Do you listen to music when you're painting, for example? And if so, what sort of music? Yeah, that's a good question, I think, because I don't. I don't listen to anything much, and yet I often have the radio going. It's always on Radio National. Uh, probably because I don't know how to put <laughs> change the station. <laughs> and uh, I love the music show when it comes on and uh, I sometimes put my pens down and dance to the music if it's the right type. Feel free to do so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I don't follow, follow it, follow music and seek it out. Uh, I take it as it comes. Reading, literature, poetry? Uh, yes, I read a lot. I always have. I love reading and even a bit of poetry sometimes. I get a little bit of a uh, crush on a certain poet and like to read it, but most of it I don't. But, um, no, I don't know. Yeah, reading, I, I'm, I do read a lot. This is a way also of extending the horizons, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's a, it amazes me that a book, somebody puts their whole life into a book sometimes and you've got the, you can just pick it up and in a day or two read the most extraordinary, intimate, exciting lives. And, uh, I, you know, reading is a great thing for me to just learn about the world and so on. It's a, a great honour to be able to read somebody and they just it's there for you to coming back to the process of drawing it used to be absolutely mandatory for a young would-be artist to draw and draw and draw to go to life classes to sit and sketch uh, plaster casts of you know famous uh, Hellenistic statues but drawing isn't practice the way it used to be. So much art now involves no drawing, none of that exploration. Yeah, well, drawing has been absolutely central for me from childhood. And uh, <coughs> I've never been, I've never been to art school and learnt drawing. So therefore I've got no abhorrence of drawing bones and skulls and things which most art students hate to do because they're forced to do it. So I love um, 
I draw from casts. People, you know, that's the old traditional way mm. and people tried to get away from it because it <coughs> represented the straitjacket of art training and, and it put many a student off. But if you discover what a cast is, and having never been to a school, they're wonderful things. You know, I've got a, um, a death mask at home and I love to draw it. Um, because it takes all the colour out and it's just form. And I guess that's why the old art schools used to use them, but they became, have become a hindrance rather than a help to most people. We, we talked about this extraordinary life experience that you've, you had and you're having. Do you have artistic ambitions still? No, I don't. Um, I hope to continue, that's all. Um, no, uh, I've never had uh, artistic ambitions. Uh, I started off as a cartoonist, uh, my first paid, no, I started off as a builder's labourer, and then I became a cartoonist. That was my first paid work uh, on the Adelaide Advertiser. Um, and I, I got really well paid for a young fellow. I was only 19 when I started. Um, but I wanted to paint, so I was quite prepared to live in poverty for the rest of my life because I knew I wanted to paint, so I gave up that job. And um, I don't know where this is going. I don't well, know someone I'm made the point to me this morning that even if you'd never had recognition, even if you'd never got the commissions, even if you never had this belated honour at mm. the Art Gallery of South Australia, that wouldn't have stopped you. You would have just kept drawing away and painting away. I think so. Yes, I, um, it, it's something I've done from childhood. I've drawn things that interested me, things that I imagined some that I wouldn't be embarrassing to show people. I still keep a drawer full of drawings that I wouldn't show anybody. Oh, well, did you bring them with you? <laughs> That's a confession. Nick, Nick, is it too late <laughs> to hang them? <laughs> no, it's just one of those things that um, uh, a farm boy like me found inspiring something to do that was a way of exploring the world and um, it's just continued and got more interesting. In the few minutes we have left, I thought I'd invite the audience to ask questions. Is there anyone that wishes to, uh, to ask something of Robert Hannaford? A terrible hush is falling. <laughs> Madam, front row. Uh, well, I was born there, you see. And uh, I grew up there, so I discovered the world, my world, whatever that might be, from that plot of ground up there. And um, I love it. I love uh, the country, you know, and uh, but I think I said to you a minute ago that I'd be just as happy to live anywhere else on earth. 
But I do love that area. Um, I can't think why. It's just, um, you know, it's got this, um, it's, it's been trampled on, it's been cut down, all the trees, it's been farmed, badly farmed. The creeks have even clogged up since I've been alive to what they were. Some of the springs have dried up that have probably been there for thousands and thousands of years. Um, I'm very conscious of the Aboriginal people that must have lived there for 40, 50,000 years and suddenly disappeared in the last 150 years. I wonder why that was. <laughs> and I often think of them when I wander over the land and find little bits of rock here with pit marks on it. And you think of the 40, 50,000 years that these humans lived in the land that means so much to me. That's always fascinated me since I discovered it as a child. Uh, yes, there's a, a hand up in the gloom. How, how important are your, your, your sculptures? Uh, you dominate one form and a very important part of that, like with the, the Bradman, Simpson, and the Aboriginal Perfect people. <coughs> I love the strength of them, character. They're beautiful work. So people outside can hear, there was a question about sculpture and there's a marvellous sculpture in the collection, it's a, the, the upside down person. Yeah. Well, sculpture is something that I have done all my life, like drawing from the time I was a little kid. We used to cut the uh, pine off the Aleppo pine, the bark, and carve them and we had clay in the creek. Uh, beautiful red clay and uh, as a kid both my brother and myself my older brother Ian <coughs> we used to make things out of clay and uh, but sculpture uh, is something it's very hard to make a living from when you're young but now I can and I've taken it up more seriously in the last 20 odd years and uh, it's very like um, drawing and painting. I don't make a distinction. It's three-dimensional, and in some way it's easier because um, you can concentrate on the, the central object, <laughs> and which I love to do and in, in painting, and sometimes to the, it's detrimental to the painting because the painting is background as well as figure. And I did have a tendency to overemphasize the figure. Uh, but sculpture, the more sculpture you do, the better your paintings become because you can put your form and concentration on the form into sculpture. Can you stand up so we can hear you a bit better? Thank you. You've done many portraits. Is there a particular person that you would like to do a portrait of that you haven't done? I often get asked that and I never know how to answer it uh, because when I paint a portrait, uh, it honestly doesn't matter who it is. The most, uh, anybody who comes into the studio, that 
once you start looking and start the process of whatever it is when you paint a portrait, they become the most fascinating, interesting people. And, uh, and that can be just anybody at all. Having said that, occasionally you do see people on the street or somewhere that you want to follow and look at them. <laughs> and, um, and if it becomes yes, too much... there have been complaints. Yes, there have been complaints. And occasionally I've actually gone up and, <coughs> excuse me, uh, would you mind terribly, and I've usually got a sketch because I look like a narcissist, and here's what I do, and would you mind coming back to my studio and... <laughs> And that's, um, I still do it occasionally, but that's when the subject takes over, overwhelms. One more question, and I think we'll wind things up because Robert's voice is uh, rapidly fading. Sir. <laughs> what could be simpler question? What have you learned about humanity looking at people? Come on. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could be more witty and say something zen to answer that question. What have I learned about humanity? What, what have you learned about humanity? <laughs> I've learned that some of them can be very tricky to interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I question, question on notice, do you think? Yeah, question on notice. I'll think that one over. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. And please hold your applause for a second for Robert because uh, I also want to make the point that uh, how... This is the day of the Nicks in South Australia. We've got Nick running the gallery and Xenophon who's about to take over Australian democracy. <laughs> so it's a great day to be in South Australia, really. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to express our collective appreciation for the life and work of Robert Hatford. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.